0: Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll continue with remarks made at the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books at the Nuestros Rices Stage, a program of the Pima County Public Library. The panel was entitled Radical Hope, Letters of Love and Dissent in Dangerous Times. Editor Carolina de Robertis was the book editor, and she was joined by two of the contributors, Celeste Ng and Luis Alberto Uriella. Ernesto Portillo Jr. of the Arizona Daily Star and La Estrella de Tucson moderated the panel. Radical Hope is a collection of letters to ancestors, to children five generations from now, to strangers in grocery lines, to any and all who feel weary and discouraged written by award-winning novelists, poets, political thinkers, and activists. Provocative and inspiring, Radical Hope offers readers a kaleidoscopic view of the love and courage needed to navigate this time of upheaval, uncertainty, and fear. This is part two of a two-part series.
1: Welcome to the 10th annual Tucson Festival of Books. My name is Ernesto Portillo Jr. with the Arizona Daily Star y la estrella de Tucson. We wish to thank Pepper Viner, Holmes and Stocker Foundation, and the friends of the Pima County Public Library for sponsoring this venue and supporting Nuestras Raices. (laughs) Nuestras Raices is a library program that builds the community by celebrating Mexican-American, Chicano, Latina, ex-authors, arts, and culture. Our first author, in the middle, Carolina de Robertis is the author of the novels The Gods of Tango, Perla, and The Invisible Mountain. Her books have been translated into 17 languages and have received wide acclaim. She's a longtime activist, speaking on behalf of Immigrantes and Derechos de Mujeres, and has spent a decade in the non-profit sector before writing her first book. You see? It can be done. (laughs) She lives in Oakland with her wife and two children and teaches creative writing. At San Francisco State University, Carolina de Robertis, and of course the author of the collected essays *Radical Hope*, on which this panel discussion is based. Celeste Ng grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and also Shaker Heights, Ohio. She attended Harvard University and earned an MFA from the University of Michigan. Her debut novel *Everything I Never Told You* won the Massachusetts Book Award, the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, and the American Library Association's Alex Award, and listed in the New York Times Notable Books of 2014. Her newest book is Little Fires Everywhere. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Luis
1: Serrea is a popular favorite uh, attendee, a panelist here at the Festival of Books. Now in his 10th year, Luis has been here every year. You know his books, you've read his books, his short stories and poems, and his newest book, which has sold out here at the festival, which was d- debuted here at the festival, sold 600 copies, Ya <laughs> House of Broken Angels. He lives in the Chicago area with his wife, Cindy, and their daughter, Chayo, who is soon going to college, and he, he teaches at the University of Illinois in Chicago. In the essay, America, Iranian writer Parnas Mm -hmm. Furotan looks at the bravery of her mother and all mothers who, quote, choose exile, who walk away from everything they know in search of a safe haven, who carry their tired children upon their backs through deserts with home left behind them and the hope of American at the end of that long, perilous journey. Then she writes, America is yours. To any one of the panelists, is America still theirs?
3: Does anyone else want to answer
1: that? Is America still home to to suffering women, families, crossing the desert, crossing the sea?
4: I, I feel like our silence <laughs> is saying more than any words uh-huh. that we could. Yeah. i say I, the optimist in me wants to say yes, that it always has been. Um, the, you know, in principle, in practice, I don't know. I am, so I, I'm a child of immigrants myself. I'm first-generation American. Um, my parents came from Hong Kong in the 60s, and my sister and I were both born here. And so, you know, I think about, as you read in, in that excerpt, the, the sort of decision to leave your country, to leave your language, to leave your family, to leave all of the culture that you had grown up in. And try and make a life somewhere else. It, it makes me kind of angry, because I'm like, of course, it's your, like, yeah, you, you didn't go through all of that to come over and have somebody say, oh, yeah, this is not for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we're not the ones who get to decide. Yeah. I don't know. One of you take over. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: for me there are two layers to this answer one is institutional and one is cultural and I think that on an institutional level less and less so every day and in many ways no um, I mean it's it's wrenching that you know 800,000 registered dreamers are I mean I have a dear friend who's a former student I've been his mentor and to just watch him like live in fear constantly of whether he'll be able to stay when he's really part of the fabric of the society and you know a devoted lec- you know university lecturer he's so devoted to his students, he belongs here, and he doesn't know what will happen, whether he'll be able to stay, and that he fears he's endangered his parents by registering, you know, because he had to make their status visible. Um, you know, so those stories are many. Um, there's deportation. There's the closing of doors to refugees. There's the you know the the back and forth with the Muslim ban. I mean, I think on an institutional level, um, it, it, that is real. But I think what Parnas is is so bravely naming and visioning in this book. in this essay is that she's saying it will still be yours, it will always be yours because, um, because if we speak it, it's part of how we make it. I mean, part of my lens on the world as an immigrant is that culture is always evolving. I mean, who decides? Who decides what a culture is and what a culture values? I mean, the truth is that there are traditions, but every culture changes from generation to generation and ultimately that is sort of up to us what we collectively weave with our words and thoughts and actions and I I do actually have a great deal of hope that we can continue to weave a welcoming society for our beautiful Mexican brothers and sisters, immigrant brothers and sisters, Muslim brothers and and really for everyone and that we all we all benefit um, from having inclusivity and love and compassion um, and openness be part of our society. Um, Jeff Chang, who wrote an incredible essay in this book, he, he always writes about how um, cultural change precedes Political change. So right now we're in a time of backlash, and institutionally, less and less is is America the America that that, uh, that that includes that welcomes refugees. We're we're moving backwards. But culturally, we can still be the tip of the spear. And if you look at younger generations, right, this is our town, this is our truth, right? I think that there's I think that the tip of the spear culturally can still be moving um, in a loving direction.
1: Luis, you want to take off on that, too? Is America still open to to immigrants, children of Mexican-born fathers?
2: You know, it, it amuses me that a bunch of immigrants who came here now name other immigrants hostile invading oh. forces. <laughs> um, you know, I, I uh, from the beginning of my career, people would say to me, you know, yeah, my family's immigrants, but they did it legally you know and I'd always say to them who checked those papers Geronimo (laughs) right did Crazy Horse stamp the paper and I think I think people don't don't always recognize that you know that the immigrant experience is a love song to the dream of the United States I don't say America because that's Tierra del Fuego to the Arctic Circle there's a lot of America Mm -hmm. and um, thank you so much but um, you know, one of the things that, that I've experienced the last few years is uh, one of my books was, was picked for the NEA Big Read, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I thought it was a big deal until I realized I was the only guy on the list that wasn't dead. So they wanted a living right. But, but it's now every year, I go to cities and I have, by accident, perhaps of birth or name, or subject matter, I'm addressing audiences of kids, Latinx kids. And because that book also got a rainbow citation for being a, a best reader for young gay readers, there's the the Latinx kids, and there's gay, trans, lesbian kids in, the, in these groups, and they're afraid. And they're ashamed, and they're sad, and they're worried, and it's getting worse. And ICE is raiding their families. ICE is taking their parents, and that you know, ICE has been parking at PTA meetings and mm-hmm. grabbing brown faces coming out. And I'm very aware, as we talked about earlier, I could I could just skate out. I might be the only one there born in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tell those kids you've got to understand this is not new. Look at our history. Find out how welcoming the US was to Chinese people. Yeah. Find out how sweet we were to Irish people, to Italian people, to Jewish people trying to get out of the Holocaust. It's not just you. This is it's a it's a it's a it's a spotlight that hunts down because we need the other. Mm-hmm. So jokingly, I tell the kids, you just hang on. This is your century, and you're going to find out somebody's going to get pissed off at Norwegians. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it's be like, let's keep those damn Vikings out of here. Build a wall on the East Coast. Stop the Vikings. It's just a cycle of this that happens, and I'm not sure why. But yeah, there are towns like Tucson, where people come and be human and can live. And I think that that's the truth.
1: Celeste, in, in the time that we're living in today and taking off from your, your essay, do you have something else in mind that you are thinking of writing in response to the current political climate? Uh, whether you, fi- and, and, you know, if you fictionalize it, do you have a sense of where you might be going as a writer?
4: I mean, I, I I'm, I'm finding, I think like many writers probably, that almost everything I'm writing is in some way kind of getting tinged by the current political yeah. atmosphere, whether I mean it to or not. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in this stage now where I'm sort of thinking about what my next project is going to be, and I had an idea about a mother and a son who are, you know, not my, not myself and my son, but there are aspects of our lives and our relationship in it, and things that they might go through and problems they might face, and as last year wore on, um, this story in my mind became more and more dystopian for some reason and I kept reading about authoritarian regimes and dictatorships and... um Dystopian fiction and things like that, and I realized that that was my brain trying to process what was happening in our current political moment. And I had to set that book aside because I don't—I don't think I'm—I'm I'm not ready yet to write it. I don't know yet, sort of, how to process that. But I, I'm finding that everything I'm writing, even when I thought it was the most apolitical thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, I now realize that that is a myth. <laughs> that, that you know, you can write anything that is not political. Sort of like when you said, "Are you not political?" Yeah. Um, I was asked uh, right after the election to contribute to a. Piece by a really well-meaning editor who said, "I want to write something that's going to be hopeful for all of us at Thanksgiving. Can you, you know, send out a mass email to a bunch of writers? Can you write something? Uh, write about what you're thankful for. No politics, please." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to write something, and I, I kind of sat there and stared at the laptop for a, a long time. And I thought about all the things that I was thankful for, and I eventually ended up writing a piece that I couldn't give to him um, about all the things that I was thankful for, which is, you know, I'm thankful for my parents. Who are people of color? Who are immigrants? I'm thankful for my my in-laws, who um, you know accepted me into their family. Who are part Jewish? Who were Jews who came over right before the Holocaust? You know, um, I'm, I'm thankful for my sister, who's a person you know with a physical disability. I'm th- all these things that. What what could I possibly say that wouldn't be political? And that's how I feel about writing now: is that anything that I'm writing in some way is going to be a response to this? I kind of dodged your question, but no, you didn't.
0: No. Uh, you are listening to remarks made at a panel entitled Radical Hope, Letters of Love and Dissent in Dangerous Times from the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books at the Nuestras Rices stage on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson.
1: Carolina, do you feel you're more radicalized uh, today than you were uh, uh, right before the election? No. No. <laughs> Yeah.
4: Uh, Actually, no, I was kind of already there. Just (laughs)
1: asking for a friend.
3: (laughs) I mean, you know, I I spent my early 20s, you know, uh, at a scrappy rape crisis center. It was the first rape crisis center in the country, and I got there. I was the first Latina and the first Spanish speaker ever hired there, and so they had no Spanish services. And they said, you know, we don't really have Spanish language services because Latinos don't. They're too scared to talk about rape. It's a cultural thing. And I went, is this really true? And then in my spare time, because I had other duties, I went out and started meeting with Latino organizations. And they were like, we want to talk. We want. Can you train us to be rape crisis counselors? We're ready. You know, can we refer people to you? What you know, how many Spanish-speaking counselors are you can have? So I founded the Latino uh, uh, Spanish-speaking services at this org- organization again in my spare time because I had other duties. And the executive director didn't seem to think this was a priority. So that's kind of where I. I come from um, as a as a person, and then you know I got passionate about my first novel. Um, but you know, with radical hope, I feel like it's bringing that scrappy activist person <laughs> into in, into the writing uh, and the and the literary process, and the fact that writing words matters and reading matters, and um, all of that is connected. I think to um, to, to thinking about what it means to make a more compassionate world. I mean, you spoke so eloquently about empathy with reading, um, and I do think the, the relationship to my most recent novel, um, *The Gods of Tango*, has evolved under um, this administration. I mean, I think because uh, queer people are under attack and immigrants are under attack, and the book, you know, is set 100 years ago in Buenos Aires, but it's an immigrant who comes and is working class and has few options, and then um, you know, and then cross dresses at first to survive, and then she begins to discover that she's attracted to women in a time and place where she has no language for that. Um, and, you know, I, I get a lot of feedback from people that, um, you know, that the book is important to them in ways that open up those conversations um, and dynamics. And so, you know, that's important to me, but I wrote it because I needed to write it.
1: Carolina, quickly on that book, is there going to be a sequel to that? Because I got <laughs> bummed big time when it ended and I wanted oh, really? to find out... Yes. <laughs> Me quedé bien question. triste. Mira I, want, que... I want to find out more. Mira.
3: Había ocurrido, okay, pero we'll talk about it. I haven't thought of up, but thank you. Right. Um maybe we'll talk. What like what do you want to see? Yeah. But I will say <laughs> But I do think the next book, it's not a sequel sequel, but it's sort of like the themes that I the themes that are still kind of feel like pending. My next book, um, it's I'm I'm on deadline with it now. It's called The Burning Edge of the World. Um, and it's about five women who are young in their teens and early twenties and under the Uruguayan dictatorship in the late seventies, and they find each other at a time when just for being branded homosexual you could disappear and be tortured and be a political prisoner and that's it you know it was the silence was so deep and they they go to this far-flung beach and they just kind of swear to help each other and turn to each other as a source of survival and it follows them from then to 2013 when Uruguay legalized gay marriage before the United States just want to (laughs) say and I've been I have and I have a close friend who actually Lived this. This is based on her and her friends, and in, in Uruguay. And I've been listening to their stories for 15 years, and so I do feel like thematically, it, it's not unconnected, maybe, to the Gods mm-hmm. of Thunder.
1: Luis, in your current book, uh, *The House of Broken Angels*, you began writing it before the the, the election. o menos no. How do you? And it's it, it's a fictionalized account of of uh, the death of uh, Luis's uh, older brother Juan. Where do we find radical hope in that story?
2: Mm. Well, first, it's so brilliant that. <laughs> I chewy. <laughs> yeah, right? I chewy. No. Um... <laughs> you know, for one, it's the first book I've ever written with one of the heroes being a Republican. Because I thought, I, and that was directly from writing for her, because I thought, wait, let's practice what we preach here. Let's not have. All the super-righteous Mexicanos facing down the culture of racist attack. Let's be humans together. That being said, the other, to to borrow a phrase you were using a minute ago, the title of the book could be F.U. Donald, (laughs) because I've been so upset and so angry, but also feeling kind of smug, because thinking, oh, you know, everything I said was going to happen is actually happening. How do you like that? and looking at my family and our whoever they are, when I say our people, I mean all of us yeah. who have fallen under this this uh, rotating light of scorn or assault or all how do you deal with it? and so this was my book to try to write an American epic. I wanted to answer. Mario Puzo and, Mm -hmm. you know, Philip Roth and all these writers and say, let's have some Mexicanos being Americans who've been here 60 years, and some of them haven't learned English yet, but they're not in a hurry, you know, they're just... (laughs) But to be Americans, what does it mean for us to be Americans as a family and trying to contribute to our culture and running up against these things? So I thought, you know, there are these moments when I hope you're so entranced with these folks and maybe you're forgetting the differences between us so that when they go out to target and they're confronted with build a wall signs or they're shopping and having an almost romantic day and a woman comes up and says my president's going to throw you out of the country soon and walk away it's a shock to the reader like it is to the people who are living a life Mm -hmm. loving and having a grandma and neighbors and working really hard and raising kids and all of a sudden somebody comes up to you and jumps you so that's where I think the 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 focus of it for me was outside of sort of our story all of us as humans we're all going to die or we're all going to lose somebody it's it's inescapable you know so I wanted to to honor our short time here but I also you know that that I wanted to to get that sense that was growing in me every draft. And I thought, I better finish this soon or it's gonna turn into something else. Mm-hmm. And I don't want it to be a diatribe, but it's mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. the political reality in which the characters in the novel are living. And if I could shock you who are reading it, like they're shocked when it happens, and it happens at random moments, you don't know when it's gonna come. That's why those kids I talk to are all kind of hunched because they don't want to be insulted or You know, thrown out. So, yeah.
1: Before I open this uh, session now to uh, questions uh, from the audience, I'd like to end it uh, with this from uh, the book. At the Women's March in Oakland on January 21st last year, Carolina cited a number of signs uh, uh, that she saw, and among the many powerful messages was this one I have been to the future, and we won. No gloating. No, no gloating. No gloating. No, no gloating. gloating. No
3: gloating. No gloating. No. Love, love. There is no other. There is
2: only us. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Her conservative husband had a transformation in last year's March. He asked, "Where is his pink hat?" There you go.
3: So I'm so glad you asked that question, and thank you for uh, introducing yourself and telling us about yourself. It's so powerful that you're here. You know, I think. Um, Identity is, so, uh, people say, oh, identity is so it's so complex and so nuanced and so beautiful. Each of us is indeed, uh, as Neil deGrasse Tyson recently said, a small universe, right? Um, or as Walt Whitman said, right? Do I contradict myself very well and I contradict myself? I'm large, I contain multitudes. Um, and I think one of the beautiful things about this era is that there is more and more room for all of the multitudes to exist. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was coming of age it was like you couldn't be white and Latina so are you a person of color or not? And I would feel like I'm a traitor if I say I'm a person of color because it's like I'm denying the privilege that is part of my life but if I don't I was part of this caucus and if I di- if I didn't go to the of color group I couldn't speak to the Latinos and I felt like I had urgent things I need to talk about with the Latinos you know so like there was an either or there and also you know I think with many identities and, and with passing passing is an interesting thing I mean it absolutely absolutely comes with privilege I'm very I just took a walk around my hotel and I'm always so keenly conscious you know if I were my wife I would be so much more scared on this walk you know if I were a brown Latino I'd be having a very different experience in this walk and I hate that I love the cacti beautiful neighborhood you know but, but, that is, but that's Real and I think talking about it um, in a way that is you know open and loving is so powerful. Um, the, the, the society's systems are created before us. We don't necessarily ask to have these privileges. I don't ask to have white privilege that makes me safer um, in the street or not followed by the security guard that follows my wife. You know I don't ask for that. It's a bigger system than us. It's not my fault, but we can just carry it um, and talk about it. But there's also a piece like. for for queerness like invisibility um, can also have a cost As well, and I think it's that's valuable to see. Like for me, I used to have long hair, and um, you know, I passed as 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 straight much more, and people always saw me as straight and not and not Latina, and so I felt very invisible. um, Even though there is privilege with it, and now I've cut my hair, and I'm like half invisible. And and even though it's more privilege to like look really femme, it's like it's kind of refreshing to just be half invisible. It's like really interesting. So. um, so, I don't know, you know, I mean, I think just continuing to talk and have conversations, I think all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what our life story is or identities we bring, we can all be part of the beautiful love party that. I, that is social justice, that is caring about making a better, brighter world, Um, wherever, whatever our angle is and wherever we're coming from, I would say, be willing to be honest and be on a continuous, joyous learning journey um, and then we can all,
4: get through this together. I want to jump in, too, because I I love what you said about, you know, this, I think multitudes was the key word for me, because I think we have multitudes within us. I obviously do not in any way pass for white when I'm out and about, but It's. I'm thinking very hard about the issues that I face, and also the issues that other people face that are akin to mine, but not the same. And so I'm thinking about, for example, like um, other issues that other groups, uh, other people of color face. For example, I don't face anti-blackness the way that black men and women do. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't face even sort of anti-the same issues of of brownness that other groups do. Um, And I think that thinking about. Ways that you can, we can think of us as a, a multitude of people. This is not coming out very clearly at all. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that I'm thinking about saying we are part of a group rather than this is their issue to take care of. You can be a listener exactly. and highlight the voices of those people who are speaking about issues that are important. And I think that that's something that's really important for um, the, the people who are not often asked to speak about these issues to say, hey, you know what, this is important. Listen to them um, to be that... Kind of person is a really helpful thing to do. Right. Amplifying, amplifying other voices. You you know, yeah, it's so
3: huge.
1: Good. Um, More questions. Carolina, could you reprise? uh, Uh, Talk about literacy of hope. Literacy, access to books.
3: Literacy and access to books and um, that teachers and translators and people who make sure that children gain literacy um, uh, are, is a really important part also of making sure that everybody has access to information and that Bell Hooks yesterday spoke to the fact that literacy is a privilege, right? It's another privilege. And
1: also.
3: Ophelia Cepeda. Okay. She's
1: a poet here in Tucson. I love it.
3: Great. So, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, literacy is a linchpin of critical thinking, right? And critical thinking is a linchpin to the conscious creation of culture um, and the the conscious shaping of culture. And so it's great that you do that. I mean, I think there's so many things we can do. We can call representatives. We can get involved in, in activism. Absolutely. We can also teach you know, and ensure literacy so that younger generations can um, can connect to books and to these conversations um, so that they can develop uh, an identity. I mean, the, those of you who are raising children or taking part in the raising of children, I mean, that's an incredibly important part also. Um, there's so many ways that we can serve. That's a, one of the good things.
4: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, yes, ma'am.
4: Um, sure. So the, the question is, can I talk about small acts, which was sort of a, um, a thing I did in desperation on, on Twitter, which is my, my social media form of choice. Um, I, I was feeling very hopeless myself about um, what, I could do in the days after the election because it felt like the problem was so big and I was one person and um, it, I was having one of those moments where I thought maybe I should quit my job and become a community, you know, a community organizer or maybe I should like go to law school and try and be an immigration lawyer, something that made a more tangible difference than sitting and putting words on paper, which felt to me very small and abstract. And um, my, my mom is a very pragmatic person. And she always sort of raised me to say, like, OK, well, if you have a problem and it seems really big, find a very small part of it that you can do and then do that. And then once you've done that, see if you can find another small part and do that. And basically, this was her way of tricking me into doing anything that I thought I couldn't do when I was a kid. But I mean, this is this is not an, an original idea, right? And so I started just on on Twitter because that was where I had um, I had people that I could talk to, saying, "What is a, a small thing that you can do to promote inclusiveness or to fight against bigotry, to fight against hatred?" You know, it could be something very small, as as, as I said earlier, writing a letter to your local Islamic center or writing a letter to your local uh, community center or whatever it is. It could be something as small as um, buying a book for your your library that features a non-white character because there's surprisingly few and libraries need money. Um, it could be anything that you do. It could be calling a representative one day, but the idea being that doing something small can have a much bigger ripple effect. And I was certainly not the only person to have this idea, but for whatever reason, I am getting the credit for the hashtag, which I feel like I should I should really say is due to all the people who actually started doing small acts and, and sharing them to show other people like, hey, it may feel hopeless, but you could do this one thing. You can call your local high school and donate $20 towards paying off whoever has a a lunch bill that's unpaid and maybe can't eat because they haven't paid their lunch bill. Um, You can do one very small thing. And a lot of times, you don't know how that's going to ripple outwards, but usually it does. So that, that was really something that I did to try and put that idea out there that it's it's much easier I think to feed off of other people's hope um, when you can see those little ripples coming in so I'll repeat the question which is sort of for, for writers in the room and, and for those of us on the, the panel it can sometimes feel really difficult to balance this sort of um, the long-term work that we're doing this sort of more abstract work of, of writing essentially um, with the sort of maybe more immediate actions like, that we've been hearing the sort of call to action and the question is how how do we balance them um, and you both are looking at me. Um, I, I think for me, it is, it's is—it's a constant struggle to balance those, but I think one of the things that helps me is to to be out in the world in this way, because I find that they feed each other. Often um, that coming to events like the, the Book Fe- Festival of Books, even just going and talking to students or talking to other writers kind of reminds me about what it is that is important to me. And then when I go back to the desk, I often feel more inspired to get going. I'm sort of reminded, like, OK, this is what, these are the things that I want to talk about. These are the things that are important to me that I want to get at in my work, that I want to talk about you know, inclusion, or I want to talk about ways in which we misunderstand each other and how we have to try harder to see each other more clearly. Whatever it is, at the, once I sit down at the table, hopefully, if that cycle is going well, it allows me more opportunities to go out and talk to people, which hopefully then cycle. I mean, that's when the process is working well. But for me, those two things really are flip sides of the same coin. In terms of managing time, it's always, I never feel like I have enough. I need about 16 more hours in every day.
1: Well, all, to, all three of you are parents.
4: Yeah, and yes. You
1: have, you, have your, you have your jobs, and, and you're writing, and taking out the garbage, in Chewy's case. Um, <laughs> so, so. You compartmentalize yeah. your, your daily routine.
4: I, I mean, it, it, it's. I try to compartmentalize my daily routine. In theory, when my son is at school, I'm sitting at the writing desk doing my writing. But I think parenting is actually sort of a useful practice for this sort of thing because I I always think that I am writing, and then suddenly I realize that I am parenting, um, or I'm parenting, and something will spark in a discussion that I'm having with my son that will unlock something for my writing. Um, having a kid is kind of a great exercise for me in having to relinquish almost any control over any aspect of your life. Um, but then my, my son, I think, like your daughter, Carolina, will sometimes come to me out of the blue and will say things that then lead to a really large discussion that I don't realize that we were about to have. Like, we, you know, you talk about going to Target. And um, all of a sudden, my son, we were going to Target. It was 9 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. And my son says to me suddenly, like, what does mean? And I went, oh, okay, well, I wasn't planning to have this discussion right this second, but, like, you know, where did you hear that? What do you, and, and he had just he had heard it on the radio, something. They were talking about at Target getting rid of the boy-girl toy distinction and how people, you know, conservatives were saying this is going to further the gay agenda because our children will no, will no longer know which aisle to go into to get their toys. <laughs> So he said, yeah, I heard it on the radio. And, and so I said, oh, okay. And I tried to explain it to him in ways that he could understand. Where I said, well, some people think that only some toys are for boys and only some toys are for girls. And he said, well, that's stupid. <laughs> and I said, yes, it is. And, I said, but here, and he said, well, why, why would they think that? That's stupid. And I said, OK, this is this is getting at something big. And again, I was not prepared to have this discussion while we were walking through Target like buying toilet paper. But the, those are the things where I'm like, I thought there was going to be this neat line. And all those things end up blurring together. And I feel like that's not a good answer to your question. But that's what it is. is you just kind of muddle through. You think you're working on one thing. And then you find that you're actually doing this other work. And then you think you're doing that job. And it ends up going back to your other piece. And I, I don't know if maybe you have better solutions but I feel like it's all related is what I'm finding and you just try and allot the hours as best you can
1: <laughs> we have time for you, did you want to take off Annette do,
2: do you want now to- she's looking at me <laughs> yeah. Wait, I have things to say but I want you to talk oh I
1: <laughs> she's your editor <laughs>
2: she is my you're the boss my mom I mean. to
3: say, please talk Louise
2: you know I, I get confused about a lot of things but one thing I do know is my own soul So I'm hopelessly committed to writing works of witness, whether I mean to or not. And I don't violate what I feel in my deepest marrow for publication or success. In fact, I should have violated those things, and I'd be further along now than I was. So I think if you stay true to that North Star that guides you, that's what comes through your work. And regardless of the subject matter or what you're doing or whether, you know, Orange Caesar or stays in the White House or not, um, your vision comments whether you want it to or not and I hope you want it to on whatever our situation is um and you know don't 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 be swayed don't be swayed by by doubt mm-hmm. and overthinking because deep down inside you someplace it knows what it wants to say you know mm-hmm. what has to be said And uh, I've learned to trust that. I don't trust a whole lot of things. I try to, but I've learned to trust that, that that thing in me will not stop. And even when I think, I'm going off on a tangent. I did a book that I kept telling Cindy, my wife, hey, I'm finally writing a pop book. I'm writing a book that everybody can read on the Princess Cruise. And she was laughing at me. What are you talking about? It's about undocumented people and gay people struggling to survive it. Oh, it was? A, I it was a pop novel. You know, we have, we have this essence. And nobody can stop it. They try to stop it, yeah. but they can't.
1: Well, I'm going to, have to stop him at this moment now. <laughs> We're going to come to our end. Celeste Ng, Carolina de Robertis, Luis Herrera, muchas gracias.
0: We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to remarks made at the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books at the Nuestras Raíces Stage, a program of the Pima County Public Library. The panel was entitled Radical Hope, Letters of Love and Dissent in Dangerous Times. Editor Carolina Di Robertis was the book editor, and she was joined by two of the contributors, Celeste Ng and Luis Alberto Urea. Ernesto Portillo Jr. of the Arizona Daily Star and La Estrella de Tucson moderated the panel. This has been part two of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schauger. You can find this show on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org, along with other recent episodes of 30 Minutes. In fact, the online version of this episode has an additional five minutes that didn't fit in the broadcast. There you can also find a link to 30 Minutes on Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe to this program.